that you don't have to posit like a dramatic world-changing event, but more sort of like, if just things continue to decline in a bunch of ways without anybody changing things, yeah, I could see this <laughs> happening. Um, and that it's sort of a slow decline. In, in the world that she lives in, there are still police around. So like when somebody goes missing or if a gang comes and you know, breaks into your house uh, and steals all your stuff or sets fire to the neighbor's house to get all the neighbors in the community to go help their house and then ransacks your house while you know, it's empty, you can have the police come, but you have to pay for them to do an investigation and they're not going to find anything. So it, it's this sort of like... I think what was most haunting to me about that aspect of the novel is that it imagines a world where there are all still these societal structures that you could say, oh, look, it's life as normal, but they don't function anymore. So things are slowly falling apart. And in this little community, her dad is the pastor of this community as well. And the narrator is struggling with she believes in something, but she's not sure she can believe in the God that her dad preaches about, um, even though she's grown up in it. So one of the things I find really interesting is anytime fiction sort of deals with how... how people wrestle with Christianity, it just as a religious profession, that's of interest to me. Mm -hmm. The other thing I find interesting in the novel is um, the narrator sort of decides she's going to create her own philosophy slash religion, um, and that as the novel goes along, she recites, she creates verses or inspirational little things that become a part of her religion that she calls Earthseed, and as she, at one point, she's forced to leave her community <clears throat> and is just looking for anywhere safe to go. And it becomes sort of a journey to some imaginary north where it might be safe. And as she goes along the way, she creates a community. And this is what hooked me. At first, it was just, I read this because it was, oh, dystopia, it's science fiction, it sounds like it might be interesting. I've uh, seen it recommended. And then as I went along, about, about um, a third of the way into the novel, she, her, her little community gets burned and destroyed and she knows there's no going back. So she and one of the neighbors from her old community head out and they, they leave. Um, not even in a planned way, but more like they just got to get away from where the gangs are destroying their old uh, homes. And they know that all their old family has been killed. So they're, no, they're on their own. There's no place to go back to. And for a while, everything is just very, very... Um, like, we've got to survive, we have to be willing to kill whoever we have to kill if we have to, and they're just sort of like, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of stealing each other again. If we run into bad people, you're trying to hurt us. Can we, are, are you willing to kill them if we have to? We are, how are we going to protect our supplies? Where is there safe water? All, that, all this kind of stuff. And as time goes along, the narrator finds other people who are vulnerable and hurting, and she lets them in, and they become a community. And this almost like she wasn't trying to do it, but she... She basically invents church um, for her new made-up religion. Um, but it, it begins at, at one point, they are um, camped out along a, a shore where they think it's going to be safe for a while, and they find um, a young couple who's also just on the road just trying to you know, get away, um, and they have a little baby in a time when clearly it's not easy to be carrying a little baby. And um, they let this family come and share a campfire with them. And from there, the family decides they want to go along. Will they take them along? And slowly... Um, episode after episode, different vulnerable, broken people find themselves willing to be a part of this community, and that there comes to be this sense of, like, we're going to take care of each other, and that as the story goes on, Lauren's group becomes more and more able to intentionally reach out to people who are <clears throat> at risk of being hurt or murdered or burned or something like that, and something changes in her. Like, and it, One of the things I find interesting is the story begins, she's very much like, I won't help anybody along the way because it could be a trap. It could be out to get me, and I can't. And as, as the story progresses, she's forced to sort of 
create a community of damaged, broken people as well, headed toward the possibility of creating something new. And at the very, very end, they make it to a place that's going to be safe, and that's sort of the end point of this novel, and the next one, Parable of the Talents, picks up from there. But what I find really interesting is the way it suggests that uh, the faith, even, even though she's inventing this religion, it doesn't exist just as words. It can't be. It eventually has to become a community of people who live it together. And even though it might be interesting in a separate conversation to pick at what are the differences between her made-up religion, Earthseed, and Christianity or any other religion, um, the idea that uh, religion isn't just we have these magic words in a text, but there's got to be a community of people who embodies it. And that has to involve care for the vulnerable. It, it, it was striking to me. I didn't, I didn't want to learn anything about my faith from this book, and I did. <laughs> Sorry, I'm hearing a little bit of Walking Dead in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of District 13 from Hunger Games in there. Right, right, right. Um, but, but I find it interesting that, especially as she starts to take these people in, mm -hmm. like she's realizing you know, she can't do this on her own. Yeah, in a way that like at first I don't even think Lauren wants to admit. I think she sees it at first as... I don't want to trust anybody, and then she's like, all right, I, these people would die if I didn't take them in, but eventually there comes to be this, we need each other. One of the other quirks about this story is it imagines uh, the, the, the title character, the, the, the central character, Lauren, has a condition called hyper-empathy, which means when she sees somebody else hurting, she feels it as though it's real <laughs> on her own. And she makes it clear that this isn't like magic. You don't have to imagine a world where there's telepathy or magic. She says that there's a... This is an, an era in which there had been a uh, uh, psych, uh, psychotropic drug that had been popular a generation before her. Her mom had taken it. Birth, she born, she's born addicted, and part of what this means is she feels what other people's pain appears. So even if somebody fakes that they're hurt, her, her, her psychology internalizes and she feels it. So for her to wound or hurt anybody else take, you know, takes her to the ground. That was another in interesting idea. But yeah, it means that she ends up... Um, realizing she, she needs other people in ways that she, at the beginning, is like, no, I'm tough, I, I can do this on my own. Well, that idea of feeling other people's pain, like, my, my best friend has that. Mm -hmm. You know, and for her, it, she sees it as a spiritual gift. Like, mm -hmm. she can see, um, she'd probably say it's more like along the lines of discernment. Mm -hmm. and, and knowing when people, you know, you see a homeless person on the street, are they actually truly, like, in pain, hurting, or are they just, you know, I don't know, just down their left. You know, there, there's sometimes there's, there's a difference between people you see out in the street. Some people just, I hate to say this, but some people are just lazy, don't want to work, and other people actually have this need. Okay. I hate saying that, but like she can tell that mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's um, that's interesting that she feels that pain um, of other people and, and internalizes that, and that what is what causes her. Um, because I think that's something that we lack in the church. Yeah, I think one of the things I found interesting in reading the book was the idea that um, empathy, especially in a heightened sense like this, where it's imagined as like a, almost almost like a superpower, but like a super weakness, mm -hmm. that she wrestles with like other people think it's like a power, and it's more like you know this wound, and it's difficult to be able to feel what somebody else is feeling. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 importance of empathy seems mm -hmm. an important piece of this story for me too, um, and that it is risky to be empathetic. And I, I think that's something, again, like here it's, it's kind of heightened or exaggerated for the purposes of a novel. But the idea that um, to be a community of people that practices empathy is, I, I'm, I'm convinced, is a good thing, but also is a risky, courageous thing because it means we will share other people's pain when it would be easier not to.
Um, and she says in the, in the book, she says that this, this thing she's got, she calls it the gift of sharing, that is hyper-empathy. She says, I can feel other people's pain and their pleasure, but she lives in a time where there's very little happiness. So that, yeah. But it, in the back of my mind is that, that line from Romans 12 about weep with those who weep and rejoice re mm -hmm. with those who rejoice. That, like a, a hallmark of the early Christian community was that we were going to be a community that did just that. That even if I don't personally experience this pain, if you're going through it, I will share it with you. And the things that are joyful for you, instead of me being bitter and envious, how come the good thing didn't happen to me, I can be genuinely happy for you. Um, and again, to me it seems interesting that the early church got this, and we sometimes are terrible at this. And then when we talk about it, we're like, oh, we invented this new idea, it's called empathy. No, we didn't. We just have stopped paying attention, and it was there in the beginning. So, since... Uh Octavia Butler uses parables mm -hmm. as the titles of the book. Is what is the connection between the parable of the sower and uh, Earthseed? Right, right, right. So the one of the things that, again, the one of the things I like about her novel writing is that there's that like the, the playful elusiveness to Christian language, and part of it comes from her dad is a preacher. There's some part where that actual parable from Matthew is there about the sower casts a seed on the different soils. Um, in a sense, I think, too, the, the story itself, the narrator sees herself as the one who's trying to plant this new good seed of her new idea, and some people will reject it, and some people won't, and some people take and become a part of her community. Um, and so I think that's part of what, what's going on. Her, the, the, the heart of her uh, made-up faith called Earth Seed is to acknowledge, it's, it's, I think you could call it today a panentheism. It's sort of a God is in everything and God is changed and the only thing that doesn't change is the fact that things will change. And so you shape your circumstances and your circumstances shape you. So I mean, it's not all that deep as a worked out philosophy. And again, it doesn't have to be for the sake of the novel. Because <clears throat> in a way it's not really about the novel, or it's not really about her religion. Um, but that idea that, this idea that captivates her, um, leads her to want to create a community of people who will live a certain way um, and then to spread that to other people. Not, not with like, a, or else you're going to hell. Because there isn't, in, in her mind, it's not about, we have to get people to believe these correct facts or else they'll go to hell. Mm -hmm. But more this, there's this sense of, we're witnessing what happens if people do whatever they, they feel like and things just sort of crumble. She's convinced, like, no, I want to create a different kind of community where we live for something beyond just my immediate survival. And I think that, that's part of what's going on in the novel, is that she's watching what happens when society becomes everybody for themselves, and it is just about survival for the next day for most folks, and she's willing to create something that is bigger than herself, and even to risk herself for the creation of that kind of community. It's interesting, I've not read the novel, but it sounds like, while she's running from Christianity, the faith that she's creating carries some of the very basics of Christianity. Right, right, right. You know, the care of others and the empathy and living for something beyond just today. Right. You know, so the fact that she's like, she wants nothing to do with Christianity and her father and what he's been preaching all these years. Right. And yet, this right. is still what she's clinging to. One of the things I find interesting is, is just that, is that like, as the novel goes along, I was trying to tease out, like, is this like she's like just opposed to whatever her father taught her? Is it more about that? And like, no, she as, as the story goes on, she kind of recognizes... There's wisdom in what she grew up with, and there's some things that she 
just doesn't bring along yeah. with her. Um, and it, it'll be interesting as other novels continue in the, I think in the second one, you get, um, it flashes forward enough that you get what her daughter thinks. And, and I think one of the things that will be interesting, I've just started the second novel in the series, Parable of Talents. But in, this, in the second novel, early on, you get a glimpse that the main character in the first has become like a religious figurehead, and later on people make her the center of a religion, and what happens in the transition between a living movement and now when somebody becomes, you know, uh, cast a, a, like a statue in a monument. We only remember certain things about yeah, it, you yeah. know. And it, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that conversation goes, too, because again, I feel like one of the tensions I wrestle with in Christianity in my own experiences, what's the difference between this living movement of a homeless rabbi and his back, you know, band of ragdag uh, tax collectors and fishermen, and what happens when that, in order to sustain itself, has to become an institution, but what things, what things change and what things are lost in the move from movement to institution, and that here we are as religious professionals in part of that institutional religion called Christianity, and um, how... How, how much is what we do recognizable to Jesus as what he was about? I think that's one of the things that's been interesting to me mm -hmm. in, in reading this, too. Um, and I think, to me, it was also... I've been thinking about this book as a window on what was it like for Jesus and his initial followers, and even the first, you know, first century church in the book of Acts, to not yet have that sort of cultural legitimacy as we're an institution, but to see itself as just this very fragile, isolated community that was, like on the verge of survival or dying, and get to spread and to, to grow and to thrive. Um, I, again, I, I don't think we often think about Christianity in those terms in 21st century America, where we only can picture it as institutions sometimes, and be like, no, we began as this very fragile thing, and in fact, that's when it thrived. And there was this sense of to belong to it was to say something, and to, mm -hmm. to belong to Christianity, say Jesus is Lord, and say Caesar wasn't, and that put, you know, the empire had their target sights on you then. Um, and th 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 this book sort of gave, for me, a sort of a glimpse of, yeah, what, what might that have been like? Because my guess is late Rome felt a lot like the late uh, USA in the, in the novels uh, that she writes out, where there are old structures that are there but feel like they're crumbling. So besides the connection between the early church mm -hmm. and this new religion, um, what other ways do you see this speaking to us today, besides some of the obvious things that you kind yeah. of shared well, at the very beginning? But I'm like, oh wait, I can see that here. <laughs> yeah, here yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is really scary considering the time frame that she wrote this for. Right. The time frame we're actually, this is not 20 years from now. This is right, right, right. the time frame we're living in. Right. And I, I think that's one of the things that I, I have been, that's been poking at me still, is that like, as someone who has read other books like, you know, the yeah, Hunger Games series, where you have to imagine not only everything's collapsed, but they've now built up such a structure of uh, order where there's this yearly festival called the Hunger Games. Like, it's hard to imagine, how would anybody agree to that? And the, 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 the books of, uh, the, the, the Parable of the Sower has this feel just of like, you know what, you don't have to imagine a totalitarian government like with Big Brother in 1984. You just have to imagine things coming unglued. And that then a whole bunch of little problems or a whole, a whole bunch of minor problems that on their own might not have destroyed things together collectively. So it's disease and, um, you know, uh, uh, natural disasters and the world getting warmer and water disappearing and institutions not being reliable, all these things coming together. And I guess part of, part of what I find interesting is that the book doesn't locate salvation as 
we'll redeem the nation or that we'll, we'll make the nation state work again. It's more like, no, there comes a point when you have to give up on these structures. And there may be new structures in the future. And, and also, that like, the, the structures themselves, it's not, it's not necessarily bad to have structures, governments, institutions, things like that. That's what keeps the barbarians away, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that, and, and it puts me in the mindset of like in, in the, you know, three, four hundreds AD, when, um, like, folks like Augustine of Hippo lived, and he wrote The City of God. In, in the days when Rome was clearly collapsing, that he could, he could both mourn things that felt like they were coming unglued. And be like, yeah, it's a sad thing that the barbarians at their gate, because there were good things. That it, it's good to know if you live in a place where a, a random barbarian isn't going to you know, kidnap your child and destroy your house or set fire to your village. I mean, yeah, it's nice to have relative safety. And yet, on the other hand, that folks like Augustine could say, could say our hope and our salvation in the end isn't that we'll just rebuild Rome and make Rome better than it was before, but empires come and go, and that our allegiance has to be to a, a different way. Of, a, he calls it the city of God, but this idea of we have a, a, a different, to borrow Paul's language, a, our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. Um, and that idea that we can want good things for the communities and institutions we live in, and yet not be invested in, those must be preserved at all costs in the form that they exist in. And I think that's a difficult thing, because uh, in, some, in some ways it feels like living in 21st century America feels like living in the late days of an empire, you know? Yeah. And it, it's not comfortable or fun to say that. Um, and I know there's always this impulse in all of us to be like, well, how can we get back to the good old days? And you can't. I mean, you might, there might be other times where things are good in new ways again. There may be some things that are good from the past that come back again. Um, but you can't, you can't step through the same river twice, you know? I mean, there, there's a... I think, I think for me it's, a bit, it's about letting go of allegiance to an imaginary the way things were or a time when things were great. And that's, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I hear a lot, especially because like this year, but in the last 10 years too, about how the generation that has come of age from the Great Recession in 2008 and now mm-hmm. through everything that 2020 has been, um, that they often describe themselves as feeling like they are going to be unlike their previous generations in that they aren't going to inherit a, 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 a lifestyle that is necessarily automatically better than what came before mm-hmm. them. And again, maybe that's painting with a broad brush, and certainly, there's certainly some folks who are doing better than their parents did or whatever. But this idea, I, I think I grew up in, in, in like late Cold War uh, childhood for me felt like you were promised by being born in America, everything was going to be better and better and better, and your kids are going to have a better life than you, and their kids are going to have a better life, and that was the story. And that was the story for a while, but I'm not sure why we accepted that, oh yeah, that's definitely how the story goes. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And that sounds like tracking where an empire is, rather than how can we be the people of God through whatever the other ups and downs are. And that's hard, because I think sometimes the temptation is, Christianity means rooting for the empire to do well, and that your 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 well being is when the empire does well. And I'm not really sure that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a cheery one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I, I will say this too. Um, one of the things I found interesting about this this book that again brings me back to, to my own Christian faith is, in some ways, it reminds me of another favorite of mine is. Um, Adams' Watership Down, which is about a bunch of rabbits who talk and have a little rabbit society. Um, and then the rabbits, 
society, they have a rabbit religion as well. They tell stories about their heroes and their god figure and all that kind of thing, who's a rabbit god. Um, but one of the things I found really valuable, it was years and years ago, um, Stanley Hauerwas, who's one of my favorite Methodist Anabaptist Catholic writers, <laughs> um, uh, wrote a book uh, called Truthfulness and Tragedy. In, in, in one of the centerpieces, he talks about Watership Down as a model for the Christian life, but a community that tells certain stories and lets those stories shape its character. Maybe it's community character. He writes a bunch of alliterative titles. Um, but um, one of the things I, I found really helpful about Hauerwas' novel, or Hauerwas' essay about Watership Down, was the idea that Christianity isn't just people who own a book, but that it's about a community that lets that story, and the book not as a bunch of rules, but as story, shape the kind of people we become. And that, that's really what I saw in Parable of the Sower. That it starts out with one person who's got a bunch of writing she thinks are cool, and that's not enough. It becomes a, 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 a community that's shaped by that text, but then it doesn't mean anything unless it lives that out. And, and to me, again, that, that speaks to how we as church make sense of what's the point of, say, the Bible or the texts that are important to us. And I think sometimes we get sloppy and we treat it as the church's job is just to own the Bible. And if you'd like to read the Bible, come here, we will give you a copy, rather than to be a community that lets that story shape us and the kind of people we become, that takes the story of the Bible and treats it as this is a story that shapes us rather than rules we have to follow to get into an afterlife. And if we let the story shape us, that's how we become more and more Christ-like, is by being shaped by the story of who this Christ is for us. Um, and to me, I, I'm always intrigued by fiction that, that touches at that, the way story and community are, are interrelated, and you can't have one without the other. And I think a place where we fail as Christians, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, mm -hmm. is we view it as just law. Right, right, But, right. like, you take, you know, the, the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, there's very little law. Right. I mean, there, there's bits and pieces here and there, but there's not, like, law like you get during Romney and Leviticus kind of law. And, and we don't know what to do with those stories. Yeah. Because we're so removed, especially here in America, we don't have kings. I mean, you know, high revolution, Hamilton, we got out from underneath the king. Like, mm -hmm. this is not the life that we live. This is not our story. This happened 4,000 years ago in a culture that's so different than ours. And we don't know how to relate to it because we don't read it as, not that we don't take it not as history, I mean, it's history too, but like, look for the morals of the story and then how do we then put those morals to practice in our own lives. And that's the whole point of, of stories like that and books like that in the Old Testament is for us to take those morals and those, those teachings and to bring them forward and we fail to do that so often. I even feel like at the, at the beginning of the actual rules, the Ten Commandments, right? So at the beginning, it starts a story again. Mm -hmm. and the, before we get to Exodus 20, and here's all the rules, here's God saying in Exodus 19, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who freed you. You're my chosen treasured possession. This is who you are. In other words, creating a community. And you're a community created by this story. You're the ones who've been redeemed, set free from slavery, set free from Pharaoh. Now here's how to live as my people. And that at its best, all the rest of the Hebrew scriptures are looking back to, okay, how do we live as free people knowing that we're the people that God set free from slavery? Mm -hmm. And that the New Testament community is similarly story people. That we're, okay, we're the people who are marked by the story of not only that God, but then this God shows up in Jesus, whose death and resurrection makes us new creation. And that everything else we talk about, about how to be a good person, flows out of that story about first how we've been loved. And to me, this, this is in, in a weird way a connecting point to our conversation last time, 
about the idea of how God's radical love or God's acceptance then brings transformation. That's kind of how the story goes. That it's, it begins with God doing the saving, God doing the loving, God doing the rescuing. Now, who are we in light of that? Um, but yeah, the, the, there's this temptation to treat the, the Bible as the book we own and just hold up for people to look at, look, I own a Bible, um, rather than we're a community that's actually shaped by it. That we don't even need to hold up a Bible to know we're followers of Jesus because we look like it, you know? And so any anytime I get to read a book that like explores that and pokes at that and makes me look at like how do we do that well or not so well, uh, for me is at least intriguing. So while I'm not sure I would say it is the cheeriest of books, and if you're not a fan of reading dystopias, I'm not sure I'd say, like, you know, hey, dig right in. Um, this might not be the year of reading. Right, right, right. Um, or read it with the possibility that it feels like you could be reading three months from now headlines. Um, at, at the same, by the same token, um, I, I guess I would, I would invite folks to engage with those kind of questions about how do we live out our faith in, in community and how, how does what we say we believe show up in how we treat other people and in particular as Christians, how does that show up in creating a community that welcomes the vulnerable um, and then equips and trains them to be part of the community that then also looks out for one another too. Um, and in that way, Octavia Butler's novel, beyond all the other ways it's still saying of me, is, is speaking to my faith these days. And in a time when we can't meet in community like mm -hmm. we're used to, it, it's that much more important for us to be thinking about community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, that's, that's a good point. Is that we live in a time where it feels like we're gonna, the church is going to be doing a lot of figuring out new ways of doing things that were important before. Some that will be very similar, and some like, you know what, we've got to let go of the structure for right now. We may come back to it, but we've got to be willing to let go of um, how, how things used to look for a while. And... For some, that will freeze them up with fear. Like, no, unless it's exactly like I'm used to, it can't, it can't be. And instead of like, you know what, from the beginning, we've been reinventing ourselves. And it was first us meeting in house churches, and then in the catacombs, and only eventually in buildings above ground of our own. Um, yeah, church has been reinventing itself all along. And if we are, are not afraid of that, or at least willing to face the fear of that rather than run from it, I think that, that allows us to, to be faithful to our calling. Well, I appreciate your being willing to listen to me describe what is a, a very dour novel. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Well, join us next time, hopefully for something brighter and happier on Crazy Fate Talk. See y'all. Bye.